Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you. If you're with us in person, if you're watching online, we're glad that you are with us also. It's good to be back up here. I've had the last couple weeks off as our family was on vacation. And uh, two Sundays ago, uh, we were on vacation in Bethany Beach, Delaware. And we're one of those families that even when we're on vacation, we look for a church to visit on Sunday mornings. And so we were looking for a church to go to, and our church is a part of a wonderful fellowship, the Assemblies of God, and often I'll look for an AG church when we're on vacation. But honestly, on vacation, it doesn't matter that much to me. The two things I'm looking for is a church that teaches the Bible and a church that's close to where I want to have lunch. And uh, as soon as we figure that out, that's where we're going for service. And so I was looking on uh, the local uh, list online of all the different churches, and I was reading out loud to my family, here's this church, here's this church, and then I came to church, and it was a Presbyterian church. And my, one of my daughters said, a Presbyterian church? And I thought, oh, wow, she's got like theological thoughts on the Presbyterians. Um, but instead she said, uh, she goes, she's very confused. She said, there's a church for people who only eat fish? <laughs> Pescatarians. <laughs> I don't know what it says about me as a dad that my daughters have better vocabulary with food than faith. Um, But uh, we did not go to the Pescatarian church, although I did eat a lot of seafood on vacation. You know, it's funny what shapes the way we think about things and understand things. And if you're a person of faith, you have quite a bit of, you have quite a few ideas about heaven. But what has shaped your understanding of heaven? What has shaped your view of, of heaven? And December 31st, 2017 was the last day of the worst year of my life. That year I had buried my father and my brother. In the course of losing my dad and my brother, it caused me, it pushed me into a place where I thought about heaven more than I ever had. And I went to the scriptures with lots of questions. Where is my dad? Where is my brother? What is heaven like? What is eternity like? What does the Bible have to say about heaven? And this morning, I want to share with you kind of a remix of that message. And we're going to talk about thinking about heaven. C.S. Lewis said that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most about the next. The Christians who did the most for this present world are precisely those who thought the most about the next. And here's a question I kind of want to just lob out like a grenade at the start of this message. How much this week have you thought about heaven? How much this summer? How much this year? How much time do we spend actually thinking about heaven? And so you're here. So for the next half hour, we're going to think about heaven together. And we're going to look at what the Bible has to say. We're going to answer three questions. When it comes to heaven, what should we think about heaven? When should we think about heaven? And then lastly, why should we think about heaven? And the first question we're going to talk about this morning is what should we think about heaven? And what we're going to learn is that the Bible actually talks about heaven in four distinct ways. So when someone shares with you their thoughts or their opinions on heaven, one of the first things you have to ask them is what heaven are you talking about? When you say heaven, what do you mean? And I created this graphic to help us kind of think through and understand the four different ways that the Bible talks about heaven. And the first way that the Bible talks about heaven is the heavens as the atmospheres. 
the heavens that we could walk outside right now, look up into the sky and see. The Bible calls that the heavens. And in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, it says that God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. God is basically creating a waters sandwich with the heavens in between. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So one of the ways that the Bible talks about heaven is the actual sky, clouds, the moons, the sun, the, 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 the stars, the, the galaxies. That's one of the ways that the Bible talks about heaven. And when we think about heaven that way, there's a few things we need to know. First off, that heaven is a part of natural creation. God created that, the heavens. And as is true with all of creation, the heavens are under a curse. When sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, the curse that came with sin didn't, doesn't just affect you and I. It didn't just affect our hearts, our spirits, our souls. It's not just a sickness within us. It's a sickness upon all of creation so that Paul in Romans says that creation itself groans for the day of redemption. So as beautiful as the sunset may be, as, as breathtaking as a sunrise may be, as much as you may enjoy looking into the skies and, and getting out the telescope and searching the stars and considering the galaxies as beautiful and wonderful and breathtaking as it is, it's not actually all that it was created to be because, like you and I, it's under a curse. It also, the heavens, worship God. We learn this, Psalm 19, the psalmist says, the heavens... Here he's talking about the clouds, the skies, the sun, the moon. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So creation, or sorry, this understanding of heaven, part of creation, under the curse, worships God. Also, the heavens point to a creator. In Romans 1.20, Paul says that the invisible attributes of God can be seen and even understood by viewing the beauty and wonder of creation, including the heavens. And so the heavens, this first understanding of the heavens, the sky, the star, the sun, the moon, all that we can see, part of creation under the curse, worships God, points to a creator. The second way that the Bible talks about heaven is the kingdom of heaven. And we really begin to hear about the kingdom of heaven when Jesus comes to earth and begins to walk around proclaiming the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke, we're going to look at Luke in just a second. Luke was writing to a Gentile audience, so he chose the term the kingdom of God. It would have made the most sense. It had the most sort of um, accessibility to Gentiles. But Matthew doesn't call it the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. He was writing primarily to Jewish people who would have grabbed onto that phrase. So they're synonymous. When you see kingdom of God, it can also mean kingdom of heaven. So let's look at what it says here in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God, or again, remember this can be the kingdom of heaven, is not coming in ways that can be observed. So here he's no longer talking about the the stars, the sun, the moon, the clouds, right? It cannot be observed naturally, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So this is interesting. This heaven is here, but we can't see it. We can't point to it. We can't say, well, look, there is 
the kingdom of God. Go over there and check it out. There is heaven. Heaven is in our midst, but in a way that can't be fully seen and experienced, certainly in the natural. So what are we talking about here? And the ESV study Bible says that when Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of you, he was saying two things. First off, that he himself, Jesus, was in the midst of them and that he had come to inaugurate or set in place the kingdom of God, but also that the kingdom of God, this understanding of heaven is the reign and rule of God anywhere in his creation. So someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas, and the reign and rule of Jesus will cover every corner of creation uninterrupted and unhindered someday but we're not there yet, right? You woke up this morning and tried to get out of bed, right? You know our bodies are not there yet. We're not there yet. We live in what biblical scholars call the already but not yet kingdom of God. It's already here. It's in our midst. It's growing within us. Many of the parables kind of point to the presence of the kingdom of God, the wheats and the tares kind of together, the kingdom of God, and still the sinfulness of humankind right side by side already but not yet. And so, here's the cool thing, we get glimpses of this heaven, even though we don't have its fullness yet, glimpses of it. This is like going to the Taste of Syracuse and getting the dollar samples at every single stand instead of buying the full meal. You're getting a little amuse-bouche, a little taste, a little sense of what is yet to come. And any time, because we're a church that believes in praying for people, we believe that God, the things that God did in the scriptures, he still does today, that people can still be healed and delivered and set free, and that relationships can be reconciled and marriages can be restored. We still believe all that. And any time that we see that, you know what that is? That, <clears throat> that is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven breaking in, breaking in. It's, it's much less, and I know a lot of times we use this term that we gotta have our breakthrough. You've heard that probably, right? Christians gotta have their breakthrough, kind of breakthrough to the next level. It's fine. But it's actually much less about us breaking through. <laughs> and it's much more about his kingdom breaking in. We need his kingdom to break in in our lives much more than you and I need to break through to some sort of next level. And this is what Jesus is talking about, that the kingdom of heaven, we live in this tension, it's already, but it's not Yet, one of the examples that I like is if you watch the Olympics and you see like back when Michael Phelps was winning all the gold medals in swimming, when he would touch the wall and they would say, Michael Phelps, the gold medal winner in the 400 IM or whatever it was, he was the winner, but he didn't yet have the gold medal around his neck, right? There was a time they had to wait, they'd dry off, they'd wait, and then they'd have the actual presentation of the medal where he'd stand on the podium, they'd put the gold medal around his neck, and the anthem of our country uh, would play, and then it was, like, complete. And in some ways, as Christians, we kind of live between touching the wall and standing on the podium. It's one. Jesus' work is done. It's sufficient. The kingdom is here. But in a way, it's not fully around our neck yet, is it? We're still learning in the tension to trust and see God's kingdom. That's why Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So whenever we're praying for the kingdom of heaven to be manifest on earth, this is what we're talking about, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ over every corner of creation. Okay, the third way that the Bible talks about heaven is the way that actually we talk about heaven the most. This is where people who have died in Christ are right now. 
And it's interesting because even though this is the one of the three that we talk about the most, and when most Christians talk about heaven, this is what they mean. Um, even though this is the one that we talk about the most, this actually is the one that the Bible has the least to say about. We know the least about this, the present presence of God. If we were to say, well, where do believers go when they die? And you would say, oh, I know. I was in Sunday school. I know this answer. Heaven, yes. Are they there forever? Yes. Well, not exactly. Randy Elkhorn, who wrote a really helpful book called Heaven, he, 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 he says it this way. He says, if someone asks you, the people who have died, my brother, my father, those that you've loved and lost who were in Jesus, are they in heaven? Yes. Will they be there forever? This is his answer. The answer actually depends on your definition of heaven. Will we be with the Lord forever? Absolutely. Will we always be with God in the same place heaven is now? And the answer is no. In the present heaven, where people are who are still awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, just like you and I are, in the present heaven, God's people are in Christ's presence. They're free of sin and suffering. They're enjoying great happiness. They're fully satisfied. They lack for nothing. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. So those that we've loved and lost, they are with God, they are free of sin, they're not suffering, they're satisfied, they're enjoying tremendous joy and happiness. But in a mysterious way, they actually, like you and I, are still looking forward to something. They're still looking forward to their bodily resurrection. They have not received their resurrected bodies yet, according to the teaching of Scripture. And we'll look at that in a second. And they also are still awaiting the permanent relocation from wherever they are now to the new heavens and the new earth that John sees in John chapter 21. So these, we don't, I didn't fully grasp this, honestly, before I started to study this. These are not the exact same right now. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about purgatory. I'm not talking about limbo. limbo. I'm not talking about soul sleep. Uh, I'm not talking about any of that. These are not people whose eternal outcomes are still at stake. These people are with Jesus and experiencing all the benefits of heaven without being in the place where heaven will be forever. And they do not yet have the resurrected bodies. Well, how do we, well, let me finish the quote from Randy Elkhorn. So he says, Yes, after death, we'll always be in heaven, but not in the same place and not in the same condition, okay? So where do we get this from? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging the church because they're worried about people who are dying in Christ. See, when Jesus ascended to heaven and the angel said, just like he left, he's going to return, all the early Christians thought Jesus would return in their lifetime. When the believers started to die and Jesus hadn't yet returned, they had a crisis of faith. What does this mean for us? And so this is what Paul is addressing. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a nice way of saying those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus, is di Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, here's where we get the distinction between those who remain when Christ returns and those who have already passed away. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those 
who have fallen asleep. We will not go before those who have died. For the Lord himself, this is the return of Jesus at the end of time, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have already died are awaiting their bodily resurrection, not their spirits. Their spirits are in the heaven, as we're defining it the third way, with God this morning, yet their bodies are still awaiting until the return of Christ, their resurrection. The dead in Christ, they get the jump start here. They will rise first. Then we, those who are alive when Christ returns, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's, here's what the Bible's teaching us. There is a pre-return of Christ heaven and a post-return of Christ heaven. Pre-return of Christ heaven, post-return of Christ heaven. So there's an intermediate state, which is heaven, the presence of God. He reigns, he rules. Again, it's not soul sleep, it's not purgatory. Entrance is immediate. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So here's what it means. Our family members and friends who have died are in the presence of God now, and they're free from sin, and they're free from suffering, but here's what's cool. There's something we have in common with them. Together, in some mysteriously meaningful way, we both are awaiting the return of Christ and our resurrected bodies. So this is the present presence of God where people who have died in Christ are this morning. In the book, he, he answers a couple other questions that I think are worth um, mentioning. He talks about this question. In the present heaven, this one, do people have physical forms? If they're awaiting the resurrected body, what are they like now? What he shares is more conjecture from scripture, so it's not definitive doctrine here, but I want to read what he writes. He says, given the consistent physical descriptions of the intermediate heaven and its inhabitants, it seems possible, though debatable, that between our earthly lives and bodily resurrection, God grants us temporary physical forms. If so, that would account for the repeated depictions in Scripture of heavens who are, or, or, sorry, of people who are now in heaven occupying physical space, wearing clothes, wearing crowns, talking, holding palm branches in their hands, and having body parts. So that's something that we see in Scripture. So it seems very possible that there is some sort of a temporary physical form that people have when they pass away before the return of Jesus Christ, awaiting their future resurrected bodies. He goes on to say, certainly we do not receive resurrection bodies immediately after death if we have intermediate forms, and please know that's an if, if we have intermediate forms in the intermediate heaven, or what we're kind of describing as this third one, heaven, they will be temporary. They are not our true bodies, which will remain dead until the final resurrection, nor are they our future resurrected bodies. They're something else. The other question that he answers is this. Will we recognize each other in the present heaven? So right now, do we know each other? My dad and my brother, are they aware of each other? Do they, do they know each other? And he says this, and I think this is helpful. Scripture gives no indication of a memory wipe causing us to forget family or friends. On the contrary, if we wouldn't know our loved ones in heaven, then the comfort that Paul talks about of an afterlife reunion in 1 Thessalonians 4, it would be of no comfort at all. There's no comfort in going to a reunion where you don't know anyone. The comfort is, is that we know each other. 
And what he, he brings this out, which I thought was really insightful and, and thought-provoking. In Christ's transfiguration, which was a very mystical event that happened when Jesus was on the earth, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples recognized, Peter, James, and John were with Jesus, and the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. And you know what's shocking about that? They never seen them. They've never seen Moses or Elijah. They didn't have, they couldn't go to Moses' Instagram account and say, yep, this, this, this looks like him. They had no idea what Moses and Elijah, but they immediately recognized them as Moses and Elijah. What does that suggest? And we're, we're guessing a little bit here, but this suggests that personality will emanate through whatever forms we take as we wait for our resurrected bodies. If they could recognize men they had never seen, how much more likely is it that we will recognize our family and our friends when we go to heaven before the return of Jesus Christ? So the heavens is the skies. The heavens is the reign and rule of Jesus. The heavens is where the people that we love and lost are today. And then the last way that the Bible talks about heaven is the future new heavens and new earth. And I could take you to Revelation 21, and we will end up there. But I actually love the way that the prophet Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look at this in Isaiah 25. He says, on this mountain, he's talking about the mountain of the future new heavens and new earth. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So he's speaking of this provision, this luxury, this sort of generosity of what the Lord will provide for us. And speaking of God, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is the covering that's cast over all people? What is the veil that's spread over all nations? It's the curse. It's the curse, the covering of shame, the covering of sickness, the veil of our eyes not being able to fully see and experience Jesus. He will swallow it all up. In fact, verse 8 says, he will swallow up death forever. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, when this was written, when one God consumed another God, by the way, we saw this in the story of the Exodus, when Moses, remember Moses and Aaron's serpent swallowed up Pharaoh's serpents? That was a very sort of symbolic action because when one God would consume another God, it was like absorbing and taking its power from it. So when Isaiah says that the Lord will swallow up the covering over, our, over us and the, and the veil over the nations and death, what he's saying is that death and the curse will lose its power forever. And death itself will die. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach, which is the word that means shame, of his people. He will take away he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, this is, uh, this is my line and your line on that day. We'll look at Jesus and we'll say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's a feast. There's the swallowing up of the curse. There's no more sin, no more sickness, no more shame. There's the end of death. There's the wiping away of tears. There's the taking away of our reproach. And all these things are going to be wonderful when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. But the best part is none of those things. 
The best part isn't even going to be the reunite, reuniting with those that we've loved and lost. The best part is in Revelation 21.3 where it says that God's dwelling place, remember when Adam and Eve walked through the garden before the fall, God would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with them and talk with them and have uninterrupted, unhindered, unfiltered relationship with his creation. But sin created a separation between us and the Father. But someday it's all going to be made new. And in the new heavens and the new earth, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There's so many things I'm excited about when it comes to heaven. I'm excited about all of our wounds being healed. I'm excited about serving Jesus the way I wish I always had for all of eternity. I'm excited uh, about experiencing increasing joy day after day. We live in a world where the glory fades. Everything loses its appeal and its wonder. The first time you see something is the best time you're ever going to see it. Why? because the glory fades. But for all of eternity, the glory will grow and increase. And one day after another, we will grow in delight as we see more and more of the glory. I'm excited about all of that. I'm excited to be with my dad. And I'm excited to be with my brother. But you know what I'm most excited about? To be with Jesus. The best thing about heaven will be that Jesus is there. And that forever, we will be with him. We will see him and we will be like him. The new heavens and the new earth will be everything as it was meant to be plus so much more. We're not just going back to the garden. The story begins in a garden, but where does it end? In a city. We're not just going back to the garden. Yes, the garden is a good look. In fact, when you look at the garden, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see some things that give us some glimpses as to what eternity will be like. We did a, I did a sermon series years ago called Before the Fall, where we looked at four things that existed before sin. Order, um, work, Loneliness, Adam, Adam was lonely before the fall, so, so loneliness is not a result of sin. It's because we were created for relationship. Order, work, loneliness, and nakedness. They all existed before the fall, before the sin. So in some way, they will all exist in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be order. It will not be chaotic in heaven. We'll not just be floating around, bumping into each other like Casper the ghost. We will have function. We will have purpose. There will be structure. There will be meaning. There will be life-giving activity that we will be engaged in for all of eternity. There will be order in heaven. There will be work in heaven. But before you cringe and say, I'm not as interested as I used to be, it's not work under a curse anymore. It's the work we were created to do. Adam was placed in the garden to tend to the garden, to work the fields. And if there was work before the fall, there will be work. We will do meaningful, incredible, life-giving work. And next Sunday, you're going to hear a whole message about the sort of work that we're going to do for all of eternity. Loneliness, what does that mean if it will still exist? All that means is this, that we will still have meaningful relationships. We will still need one another. Sometimes we think, well, when I get to heaven, it's going to be me and Jesus forever. No, you're stuck with us. <laughs> We're going to be there too. And the relationships that we're going to experience for all of eternity will be so life-giving and so fulfilling and so meaningful in ways that we've only got glimpses and tastes of on this side of eternity. And then nakedness. Now, I don't know if we will be naked in the new heavens and the new earth. If we are, we won't care. It won't matter. That's not the point because nakedness was more symbolic than anything. We will not have sin. We will not have shame. We will not have regret. You'll never wish again. I wish I could go back and change that. For all of eternity, you will experience the covering of Jesus. Revelation 22 gives us kind of this full uh, circle picture of Eden to 
this uh, final creation where we see in Revelation 22 that the, there is a tree. How does it say? It says there is a tree of life planted by the river in the new heavens and the new earth, bearing 12 crops of fruit. And yes, this is very symbolic, but, but stay, stick with me here. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So you go to Genesis where the fruit from the tree becomes the very source of the curse. But here at the end of time, the leaves of the tree are the healing and the restoration for the nations. And no longer there's any curse. Do you see how it pictures Eden redeemed? The tree of life is there and the curse is lifted and communion with God is restored. And so heaven, the new heavens and the new earth will be Eden the garden, brought to fulfillment as it was meant to be, but so much more because it will be a city. And what will we do for all eternity? Well, that's what we're going to talk about and learn about next week. Now, before we finish, Pastor Antonia, you can come up and join me. I want to just show how these are all connected, these four understandings of heaven. When this happens, when Jesus returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth, which some people believe will be somewhere else and some people believe will be right where we are now, either way, he's going to establish the new heavens and the new earth, here's what happens. When this happens, this will be made perfect, this will be made complete, and this will be made obsolete. Does that make sense? When the new heavens and the new earth are here, this will be made perfect. You'll see the skies and the stars and the suns and the moons as you've never thought possible. This will be made complete. The kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This will be obsolete. We won't need this sort of intermediate state anymore because we will reign and rule with him forever. When should we think about heaven? Three times on our best days. Why on your best days? Because if you don't think about heaven on your best days, you'll fall in love with this world. You'll begin to think that life doesn't get any better than fill in the blank, the perfect relationship, the job promotion, your team winning the Super Bowl, uh, whatever that thing is, on the best days of your lives, you still got to remind yourself of heaven because all of those things, as wonderful as they are, are temporary and they are not meant to fully satisfy us. So careful to set your heart on the temporary, even on the best days of your life. But you also need to think about heaven on the worst days of your life for you'll never get through them. I've learned this. You cannot get through the darkest days of your life without setting your heart upon thoughts of heaven, steadying your heart and giving you the perspective and the hope that you're not going to find anywhere else. Pastor Scott Sauls puts it this way. He says, if your hope is anchored in Jesus, then your worst case future scenario. Any warriors? Any warriors in the room? Anyone ever spent a lot of time thinking about worst case future scenarios? Well, if your hope is anchored in Jesus, and this pastor says that your worst case future scenario for you is resurrection and everlasting life. The worst thing that death can do to you is escort you into the presence of Jesus forever and ever. And then we also have to think about heaven on every other day because if we don't get into the rhythm of reflecting upon heaven and thinking about heaven, if you don't think about heaven regularly, then you will not on your best days. You'll fall in love with this world and you won't have it in you on your worst days. So we have to, as Christians, get into the rhythm of reminding ourselves about heaven. Lastly, why should we think about heaven? Well, I kind of just answered this question, but I want to give you one more reason. The Bible ends this way. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming 
soon. This is the promise of Jesus. I'm coming soon. Now, it's been 2,000 years. It's probably not the way you and I would have defined soon. And it's certainly not the way that the early believers defined soon. But he's coming soon. That promise still stands and it has not changed. Amen. And then this is the prayer of the end of Scripture. And this is the prayer of every believer. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Every time I see another tragedy in our community, a shooting, uh, a, a, a political scandal, whatever, you know what my heart cries out? Come, Lord Jesus. The only thing that's going to save this world. It's not, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not politics. It's, it's, it's not human effort. It's not new policy. The only thing that's going to save this world and make it all new again is Jesus. And so we cry out from our hearts, come Lord Jesus. Now I want to finish with this because there actually was a saying that I grew up hearing a lot, which was this. Don't be too, some Christians are too heavenly minded to be, to be of any earthly good. You ever heard that? Some Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. And I get what they're saying, that some Christians are like kind of a little loopy and not very useful. But the reality is, is that I think what C.S. Lewis said is more true, that if you read history, the Christians who accomplished the most here and now were those who thought often about there and then. Because heaven doesn't just give us a place to escape to, it gives us the motivation to live here, present, serving, loving, engaged, not setting our hearts' affections upon the things of this world, but receiving them as gifts and using every opportunity as an opportunity to honor the one who gave his life for us. And so why do we do good work if we're just waiting around for heaven to show up? Because there's another type of heaven. We talked about it, the kingdom of God being manifest in our lives. We're not just about getting to heaven. We're about seeing heaven get here so that we can see the reign and rule of Jesus in every area of our lives, our homes, and our relationships. And this is what it means. I'll finish. Our hearts can long for heaven, and they should. They sh your heart should long. If your heart doesn't long for heaven, you, you might love this world too much. You might not understand the beauty that's coming. Our hearts can long for heaven while at the exact same time, our lives can fully and joyfully carry out the work that God has given us to do here because as long as we have breath in our lungs, there's a reason we're here. The reason is not just to get to heaven, but the reason is to experience the heaven that God has for us here and now as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.